Europe's banks still in trouble, the downside to stock buybacks, and why bank profitability could be depressed for decades. This is where the money is. Hi Fools, financial analyst Michael Douglas here with senior banking specialist John Maxfield, all the way from Portland, Oregon. John, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you, Michael. All right, fantastic. Well, we've got a, a pretty stacked show today, a pretty banking heavy, but of course, you know, we're financial, so that's kind of, a, that's kind of well, as it is, where the money is. Uh, let's start with our first headline from our friends over at Bloomberg. Europe's banks are still a threat. The uh, European Central Bank just published the results of its annual stress test. They examined 130 banks, found that 25 didn't have enough capital to safely endure another recession or financial market shock. So uh, some people saw this as a great success. Why is that, John? Well, the reason a lot of people saw this as, as such a big success is because people were concerned yeah. that there were going to be much worse results. So you had, a, you had a group out of Switzerland, for instance, that looked at the 37 uh, kind of worst positioned banks in the European Union right now. And they estimated that they were short of capital by something like $500 billion. Well, this test came back in, and this was run by the, the European Central Bank. And they said that, look, um, even the worst banks are only short by, I think the, the eight worst banks were only short by roughly $6.4 billion in capital. So it was much better than a lot of people had originally forecast. Sure. Good to hear. Well, of course, on the other hand, a lot of crit folks criticized the test as being maybe a little bit too lax, that there was a concern that, you know, if the ECB found negative results, it would send the, well, it would depress consumer confidence substantially. Um, wh what's their argument there? Well, I, I think there's a lot to be said about this argument, and, and their, their general argument, um, as best as I could tell, is kind of twofold. Number one, they're saying that, look, the banks were not adequately assessing the value of their assets mm -hmm. and that the ECB isn't coming in and forcing them to, to write those down to, to say the same extent that, that the Federal Reserve in the United States uh, requires the banks here to do. And the second part is that just the standards that the ECB was looking at in terms of how hard of a shock they were testing these banks against were not even close to as hard of a shock as the, the Federal Reserve tests our banks here in the United States against. Yeah, so there was kind of a concern that even though previous tests had been way too lax, that this one, while still tougher, was maybe not really, well, tough enough. Um, I, I get the sense you're kind of leaning toward the second, that maybe it was a little too lax still. Yes, yeah, I, I, would, I would totally agree with that. Look, you can never, whenever you run a stress test like this, these are hypothetical tests, right? So you, you never know exactly what that next crisis is going to look like. In fact, many of these tests are predicated upon what the last crisis looked like, and crises just don't look the exact same you know, anytime you have one after another. So, so there is reason to think that they were too lax. And I think we have pretty good evidence with what's going on in the European um, economy right now that banks, in fact, are not even close to full strength. Because you have unemployment there at 11.5%, or at least that's what it was um, in the latest read in, reading in August. Mm -hmm. And you know, here our unemployment rate has gone all the way down back to below six percent. Now there's some there's some noise in those numbers, but the fact remains that ours has improved, whereas theirs is still staying staying uh, in that double digit range. And one of the reasons is that we forced our banks to come in, get a bunch of capital, make sure their balance sheets uh, were in a much better position relative to say the European banks, and that allowed them to start boosting that lending back up. And when you boost that lending back up, that then pushes economic activity. Well, we're just not seeing that economic activity in the European Union right now. And one of the reasons, I, I think it's safe to assume, is because banks have not realized the losses. And as a result, they're just sitting kind of on these dormant losses and not willing to lend because they're, they're 
uh, afraid that they're going to um, create more losses by doing so. Yeah, definitely worrying trends uh, and something. I mean, of course, Europe is uh, one of the big financial markets, so we're going to be wanting to watch that very closely moving forward. Let's move on to our second headline. It's called The Downside of Stock Buybacks. It's from our friends over at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and their, uh, their commentary was that basically there are sort of these four, um, four reasons to question the enthusiasm for share repurchases. And the first one was uh, a claim that it could be the sign of a market top. Uh, the second was some concern that buybacks are often driven by executive compensation, often that they uh, um, can be used to kind of mask just how much uh, executives are being given, uh, which dilutes shareholders. Um, thirdly, that they are sometimes not necessarily the best use of company money. And fourthly, that um, even if companies buy back stock, um, the shareholder claims on sort of overall profits as a percentage of the economy could actually decline even if share count stays flat. Now, um, I, I think we'll probably delve a little bit into each of these, but, but just real quick, what, what's the one uh, of those four reasons that you found sort of the least attractive, the least convincing of the bunch? So the one that I found the least convincing is that you can associate increased share buybacks with market tops. Mm -hmm. And this is for the simple reason that anytime you're trying to couple some type of activity with a market top, it almost invariably fails. Yeah. So, trying to, so, so trying to predict that with share buybacks or anything else, I, I think is, is a big mistake. Sure. Same with the day traders and the, and the triple candles, right? Or, or whatever the, <laughs> the oscillator do. You don't believe in triple candles? <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So, oh, go on. No, go on. Sorry. Uh, so uh, of those four then, what, what was the one that you found the most convincing? Well, let me just say that as a general rule, I find the tenor of the argument very convincing mm -hmm. because it's my opinion that as a general rule, share buybacks have a tendency to destroy shareholder value yeah. as opposed to creating it. And the reason for this is, 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 is pretty straightforward. Share buybacks, unlike dividends, so you have two ways that you can return capital. You can return it through share buybacks, return it through dividends. One reason companies like share buybacks is because they can alternate the size of them, whereas dividends, there's an expectation that dividends stay the same because fixed income investors, you know, kind of, they, they, they get to rely on the amount of income that's coming from their portfolio. Well, share buybacks, they can alternate them. So when times are really good, they can boost those up. When times are bad, they can draw those back. Well, the problem with that is that when times are really good, their, the price of their shares is also really high, and times are bad, the price of their shares is really low. So what that means is that, as a general rule, companies have a tendency to buy stock their own, their own stock back when it's trading for a very high valuation, and then not do so when they should be buying it back when it's trading for a low valuation. Let me just give you kind of a, a really good example of this. So in 2003 to 2007, Bank of America came in, bought back something like 780 million dollars, 780 million shares at a share price, an average share price of $52 per share, and that equated to a buyback of something like $40 billion. Well then when the, when the, when the economy tanked and Bank of America got into trouble in 2008 and 2009, it issued 3.5 billion shares at something like $13.50 a share, so if, and it raised something like $47 billion. So what you saw there is that just by that act of going in and purchasing all that stock back at, at, at inflated values before the crisis, they basically got rid of $40 billion of capital at a time when they needed it the most, and then raised $40 billion of capital when basically the share price was nothing. Yeah, and I think that's a good example. For me, you know, this idea that share share buybacks are often done when a company doesn't really know what else to do with its money um, is, is a, a really big concern for me. I mean, I, I want 
if a company is growing at single-digit rates, instead of buying back shares and maybe cutting its executive compensation a little bit too, but that's a separate conversation. Um, but instead of buying it, uh, buying back a bunch of shares, I'd rather they tried to purchase another company, tried to drive a new growth driver. I mean, something where they can create more shareholder value and more sustainable shareholder value of the long term instead of just relying on their current cash flow. Um, right, and you know, and the, the other thing that that companies can do, but they they rarely do this, is they can institute one-time dividends mm -hmm. to their shareholders. And what that will do, so you'll have your, your base dividend, which is what they're paying, and then if you have a whole bunch of excess cash, then maybe once a year or once every couple of years, you can shoot, you can send back a whole bunch of, of cash to your shareholders. And then that will leave it up to the shareholders because then they're free if they want to repurchase that stock. Or otherwise, if they don't think the stock is trading at good valuation, they can take that money, go out and use it somewhere else mm -hmm. where they think that uh, things are trading for better valuations. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I think that's that's very fair. So you know, in general, I, I don't think that necessarily share buybacks are a, like a red flag necessarily, but um, they do raise questions for me usually when a company is doing them. I would much rather see one-time dividends, consistent dividends, purchasing other companies. Um, I think there are a lot of other smarter ways you can deploy that cash. Um, so so let's let's step into our, our our third topic for the day: why bank profitability could be depressed for decades. Um, now, uh, when you look at banks, they're much less profitable today than they were before the crisis. Between 94 and 2006, uh, the bank industry's average return on equity was kind of in the low to mid-teens, 12 to 15 percent. Now it's kind of in the, the high single digits, 9, 9 to 10 percent. Um, so I, I, the big question, of course, uh, over the long term, should investors assume that this is the industry's new steady state, or are bank profits still being weighed down by legacy issues uh, from the bank crisis? Okay, so there, there's really two things going on here. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess the answer to that question is yes and yes. So there are still legacy issues, right, that are that are plaguing the banking industry. We see this with Bank of America. Last quarter, it, ent it, it entered into a $16.65 billion settlement with Justice Department and some state attorney generals that obviously hit its income statement, which hit its profitability. Mm -hmm. So there are things, but that's the exception as opposed to the rule. The rule is that, as a general rule, what we're seeing is higher expenses on the banking side. So we see efficiency ratios that are going up. They used to be in the 50% range, high 50, mid to high 50% range. And just for the record, your efficiency ratio is the percentage of non-interest uh, expenses, uh, or the percentage of your revenue that is consumed by your non-interest expenses. So before the crisis, roughly 55 to 60% of revenue in the bank industry as a whole was being consumed by expenses. Well, nowadays it's in that mid 60% range. That has a big impact on the bottom line for a bank. So you have your expenses that are higher. And the other thing on the income statement that we're seeing is that your non-interest your non-interest income is much lower. So you have all that uh, all, all, all that hoopla about overdraft fees, about credit card add-on products, all those things that cause banks to draw back in those areas. Well, that's hitting their their income statement in terms of lower non-interest income. So you have lower non-interest income and you have higher expenses, obviously, the net result um, is lower profitability. Sure. So, so does that mean, so, so looking at the banking industry as a whole then, that seems to imply that it's a less attractive investment on the whole. Right. And, and let me just be clear, th those things are happening because you have a, a more robust regulatory environment, which is something that, that can be expected after uh, a crisis like the financial crisis. We saw, right, we have a lot of the regulators took a lot of heat for not going in and seeing this ahead of time, so they're coming back in and kind of reacting to that crisis um, by being tougher on their constituents, which are the banks. So that's one reason to think that we are in for a few decades worth 
of lower profitability because this is a it's kind of a, 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 a playback of what happened right after the right after the Great Depression. And the other thing is that so these regulations that have been put into place and they kind of draw back to the Dodd Frank Act, they are requiring banks to hold significantly more capital relative to their assets than they were before, and that capital must be of a higher quality and more liquid. And what that does is that by holding more capital, that reduces the leverage that banks uh, that that banks are able to use to boost up their capital base. So let's say you have a hundred billion dollar bank that has a hundred billion dollars in assets. Let's say it has ten billion dollars in equity. So it's 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 leveraged ten to one. Well, if it only earns one point five percent on that uh, on on its on its assets, which is one point five billion dollars, that's a fifteen percent return on equity. Well, if they're being required to hold, say, now this is just hypothetical, $20 billion in equity, that will reduce that same 1.5% uh, return on assets, will translate into an only 7.5% uh, return on equity. And that's what we're seeing. It's not, not to that great of extent, but that's, that, that's the general idea that we're seeing right now in terms of what the impact of higher capital requirements on profitability. And then if you look at just kind of the composition of the assets themselves, so before the crisis, banks held something like a quarter of their assets were in cash, cash equivalents, and high quality marketable securities that could be e easily liquidated if the credit markets freeze up. Well now you're in that 30% range, 30, mid 30% range, and what that does is that drives down the income you're earning on your assets because loans, which are less liquid, pay much higher in interest than say ca obviously cash, right? but also in terms of marketable securities. So you're also hitting your income on that side too. So when you take all of these things into consideration, I would be surprised if the industry as a whole is going to be as profitable in the next few decades as it was in the in the decades before the financial crisis. Right, which isn't to say, of course, that we can't find hidden gems. And uh, John, I know there are several that you uh, that you really like. So certainly check us at fool.com for a few of those picks. Uh, John, thanks very much for, for being with us today. Um, for The Motley Fool, I'm Michael Douglas. Please uh, stay tuned to fool.com for all of your uh, financials needs and other investing needs. Fool on.